Well, good morning. It is good to gather together in this way with our Lakeside Church family and everyone else who is watching online. Uh, we just welcome you today as we continue in our series on and in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's hard to find a better known or more beloved account of Jesus and his disciples than what we find in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus walking out onto the stormy waters to rescue his frightened friends. And this account is retold in three of the four Gospels. Only Luke leaves it out for the others to tell. And this story was told and retold uh, by the early church. Historically, the story of Jesus walking out on the water to rescue the disciples in the boat is often understood, and as we still understand it now, as a picture of Jesus and his church in this age, and the church's right response to Jesus. As we've been going through Matthew, you know that Matthew is repeatedly uh, re-examining and re-illuminating the kingdom of God, the in-breaking kingdom that Jesus Christ is the king of, that he is the Messiah of, this kingdom that he is inaugurating. And this story, uh, as retold by Matthew um, of this event, uh, accomplishes that same purpose. Um, so we need to ask ourselves, what does Matthew reveal to us about the king and the kingdom and his citizens in this account? Why is this memory of the disciples so faithfully passed down to the church? What does the Holy Spirit preserve for us in this account. And I think what we'll discover is that in addition to the broader picture of Christ and his church and his followers that the story paints for us, it's also meant to be an encouragement and an instruction on the relationship between fear and faith in the kingdom of God. What we are to do with our fears and how fear relates to faith. So just as we get into it, I'm going to give a little bit of background context as to what leads up to this event out on the Sea of Galilee. And then as we move through the actual events <clears throat> of it, I think we'll see the story sort of move through six phases. And I'll just give them to you ahead of time so you can be um, thinking about them as we go through them. Um, the first is the trial of Christ, which comes in the storm. The approach of Christ walking out onto the waters the reassurance of Christ, which is spoken to us, the invitation of Christ to come to him. And then after those four elements, we have the personal adventure of Peter with Christ, which is a reflection of all of us as believers in Christ. And then secondly, the disciples' response to Christ after all of this takes place. So let's just consider now this uh, really well-known, really beloved story. Uh, of Christ walking out onto the waters to rescue his friends in the storm. And we've skipped ahead a little bit in Matthew here. Uh, there's five more parables in Matthew 13, and we didn't cover every one of those uh, parables. And then at the end of chapter 13, um, Jesus encounters disbelief in his hometown, and he can't do many miracles there as people just don't believe in him or who he is or what he preaches. And then in chapter 14, we have an account of the death of John the Baptist, which that event caused Jesus to want to withdraw from his teaching ministry for a while. But even as Jesus 
in his sorrow over John the Baptist, begins to withdraw. Crowds follow him out from their towns to seek him out. And Matthew 14, 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And so despite his sorrow over John the Baptist and his desire to sort of regroup and recharge uh, in his fleshly and human weakness to go to his father in prayer and recharge, Jesus presses on even in this time of feeling empty. He presses on out of compassion for those that need him. And then with well over 5,000 people gathered to see him and to hear him, but without any food, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and he feeds all of them in the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 plus women and children. So maybe it's the feeding of the 15 or 20,000 might be closer. And so after the healings and the miracles of the feeding, the people come back for more. Jesus, they just keep coming back to Jesus for more. But then we read in Matthew, we get to our text now. That's sort of the background. That's the situation that's going on with Jesus and where he's at. And we read now in, in verse 22 of chapter 14, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. So this comes across as very unexpected in Matthew's account because Jesus has maybe 15,000 eager listeners there who you would think he would want to continue to teach and continue to share the gospel with. Seems like a perfect opportunity for him to just settle in and start really building a base of believers beyond just the 12 disciples. But if we look at the account of this in the Gospel of John, we discover the mood of the crowd is not what Jesus was aiming for. After healing and after the miracle of the feeding, John says that the crowd was about to come and take him, being Jesus, by force to make him king. So these people have misunderstood, and we've seen this before, where they don't understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing into this world. They have eyes, but they could not see. They have ears, but they could not hear. So Jesus literally takes matters into his own hand and he makes the disciples get into a boat and leave him. And then he disperses the crowd. And I don't know how one guy disperses a crowd of 15,000 people, but Jesus would be the one to do it. And so now Jesus seeks out the solitude he was looking for before the crowds found him. He goes up into a mountain to pray. And just at the same time that a storm is beginning to brew over the Sea of Galilee, and there the stage is set for his encounter with the disciples on the waves and with Peter and with the calming of the sea to come. It says in verse 24, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so this is the first thing we see in this account. We see the trial of Christ that comes in the storm. And we can notice here that the disciples have actually obeyed Jesus. They did exactly as he told them to do. He told them to get into the boat, go up the shore to the next town and wait for me. And yet even as his disciples obey Jesus, they're caught in this storm. They're struggling against the waves and the wind is against them. This isn't a storm like Jonah found himself caught in as he ran away from God. You might expect if the disciples were being disobedient, if they were being rebellious, if they figured they had a better plan than Jesus and they set off on their own, to execute that plan, then it would make sense that a storm might come up to overtake them. But they were being obedient. 
And so if we consider the imagery that Matthew and the early church applied to this account, then we can consider our own lives as disciples of Christ and even consider ourselves as the larger church, as the boat that's out in the sea and facing the headwinds. We can see it was obedience that put them in adversity. It's obedience that puts pastors in jail. It's obedience that puts missionaries in danger of uh, health and hostage situations. Even in obedience to Christ, you will face trial, especially because you obey Christ. It's one thing to be in a storm like Jonah out of disobedience, but it's another thing, isn't it? When we are in a storm, when we're being obedient, and yet still the storms come in our life. Even as believers, even when we're following after Christ, we find storms come against us. You may have been reading in the news or you may have seen it online that Lauren Park Baptist Church recently fired uh, their pastor um, who came out as transgender. And there were definitely signs there and beyond that of deep theological differences in terms of their pastor and in terms of that church. And so they had to let him go. You can just imagine how they are up against the waves and how that church finds itself faced into the headwinds of a culture. As Christians, we can share this experience. We have these storms in our life where we are seemingly pressing against the headwinds of a culture that is against us. But apart from the cultural winds and the waves, we share this experience of storms in our own personal lives, not because we've been disobedient, but just like this storm, even seemingly random things come up. It's just bad weather that blows up on the sea out of nowhere. These experienced fishermen didn't even see it coming. And when we are caught in storms like that, we can think that life is out of control and that God isn't watching, that he doesn't see us, that bad things just seem to happen to good people for no reason. And the trial of the storm begins a conflict, which I think is front and center in this story. It's a conflict in our souls between faith and fear. And we start to wonder, where is Jesus? Where is God? Why this adversity? Why this trial? And fear begins to replace faith. But in this account, we also discover that Jesus sees us in the storm. Even when it may seem like Jesus is far off, Jesus never has his eyes off of his people or off of his church. The account in Mark records this. If you were to go to Mark chapter 6, Mark records the same story, but he in verse 48 says this. It says, he saw when Jesus was on the mountain, he saw that they were making headway painfully. So here's Jesus. There, John says, like four miles out to sea. Jesus is up on a mountain somewhere, but somehow, Jesus being Jesus, he can see this little speck of a boat out in the dark, out in the storm. And he sees that they are up against the wind. So Jesus never has his eyes off of his people or off of his church. Trials come in the storm and they may seem random in, their, in our life, or they may even come from us being obedient to Jesus and just facing the headwinds of the culture that stands against him. The trials that come to us may seem to be out of God's control or even seem to be in the control of our enemy. But Jesus is going to show us that he is the master even of these storms. And he approaches to bring his comfort in his time. That brings us to the second item, which is the approach of Christ, walking on the waves, demonstrating the power, the proof of who he is and the ability that he has to rescue. 
It says in verse 25, And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So Jesus is looking at the disciples even before they're looking at him. He's coming to them when they are in need of him. He is approaching. When we face adversity in our life, we are usually guilty of attempting to overcome it ourselves until we exhaust all of our own means. And then we finally realize that we need some help outside of ourselves, and perhaps then we will pray. Perhaps then we will look to Jesus for help. As long as we have it under control, as long as we can do it, we generally don't ask for any help. We don't even invite Jesus into our life to deal with the things of our life because we just figure we can handle it on our own. Just as there may be very few atheists in wartime foxholes, there are often too few, very many too few Christians earnestly seeking Jesus in good times. We figure when everything is smooth sailing, we can handle life on our own. We've got it covered. It's only storms that reveal our self-reliance and only storms that reveal our limits. If there were no storms in our life, we would be tempted to worship our own ability and worship our own success. So God brings adversity to teach us and to teach his church dependence on him, to strip away self-reliance and increase our God-reliance, to expose our fears, not to discourage us by saying, look how fearful you are, look how easily frightened you become but rather to replace our fear with faith, as we will see shortly. In Mark's account of Jesus' approach to the disciples, he says he appeared as though he would walk past them. Or perhaps a little better phrasing is, he came up alongside them. He was walking beside them. There's an element here of Jesus acting out the reality of the kingdom of God is near at hand. It's right here. I have come into the world. I have drawn near. Why are you struggling in the storm on your own when I have approached so closely? How will you respond to my nearness? So the disciples' first response to the approach of Jesus is not faith, but fear. Even though he's calmed storms for them before, even though he has just healed and fed thousands miraculously, the disciples are still not getting it. Jesus has come. He's demonstrating the power he has. He's making himself known as the Messiah, and he's making clear the ability that he has to rescue them from this storm. They can't make it in a boat, and he's doing it barefoot. But they don't see him properly. They're still not comprehending who Jesus is and why he's come, and until they see Jesus clearly, their fear is going to overwhelm their faith. But the beauty of this story as we've seen in other places in Matthew, is that Jesus has compassion for doubters. Jesus knows this. He knows it'll be true of us as well. And even as he approaches, he comforts in the words that he speaks. We hear the reassurance of Christ in his approach. This is the third thing, the reassurance of Christ, which is spoken to us. The message of Christ's coming is good news. It's not a message of fear if we trust and have faith in him and who he is. Verse 27 says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, immediately in their fear, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. God speaks to us in our distress. Jesus comes not to frighten us, but to comfort us. 
This is probably the key phrase of this account for Matthew, who we have seen regularly connects much of what he writes about Jesus to the law and to Isaiah's prophecy. So just listen to how these words of Jesus resonate with the word of God in the Old Testament and with the prophecy of Isaiah. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Or Isaiah says in, verse, in chapter 41, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Or later in Isaiah 43, he says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And then he immediately says, right after that, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and though the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So when God draws near, he knows that he must approach with reassurance. It is natural for us to fear both the circumstances that we may be in, but also fear the reality of a pure and powerful and righteous and just God who approaches us. And unless we know that that God desires to rescue us and have a relationship, it would be a terrifying thing. But he does want to reassure us that we need not fear him, but that we can trust him. And so we find within us, as believers even, this constant tension between fear and faith. And it's an inverse relationship. As one grows, the other decreases. As Christians, we may say we have faith, and yet many times our actions betray that we don't actually trust God with the most important parts of our life. We don't actually trust God with our security, with our children, with our marriage, with our joy, with our satisfaction. Instead, we find ourselves beset by fear over those very things. And as fear increases, for us as believers, it reveals decreasing faith. We're worried about something's going to happen with our children, or something's going to happen with our marriage, or something's going to happen with our health. We're scared of X, or we're scared of Y. And that can be normal at one level. But if fear is dominating your mind and it's captivating your attention, then you're not making a strong argument that you trust God in those areas of your life. On the other hand, as we turn to God and turn to his scripture and to the spirit in prayer and through the counsel of his people in the church, we discover that as our faith increases, our fear diminishes. Fear and faith are at opposite poles. Like worry, a dominating fear is basically poorly disguised unbelief. We're basically saying, I don't trust God with this area of my life and therefore I'm afraid. Now it's natural for us because we're physiological beings, we're still physical. You put me on the top of a tall building and put me at the edge, I'll fear fear. If, if, feel fear. If you uh, tell me that I've got cancer, I'm gonna be worried about that. Uh, we're wired to preserve life and to preserve safety and health. And so a, there's a natural level of fear response. What I'm talking about here is when fear starts to become our idol, when fear starts to direct the decisions that we make with our belongings or the things that we do with our life. I'm going to do this with my life because of fear. I'm going to do this with my money or my possessions because of fear. I'm going to take these actions with my children or, or with my life out of fear. 
When we start to let fear dominate, then it becomes the director of our life rather than God. And as I said, as faith increases, fear will diminish. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. So there is an element of self-control here. There is an element of saying, I understand I'm a physiological being. I understand that I will naturally respond with fear in certain situations, and that's not bad but I can't let it dominate my life. I can't let it become my God. And that's true of the whole church and of us as individual Christians. The church must not fear the contrary winds and waves of culture. We will always as a church be rowing against the wind and the waters may get a little choppy with just simple antagonism against political correctness or the waves and the storms of lawsuits and protests may even rise up, even laws being passed against us or persecution can rise up against the church and has risen up against the church all throughout history and is rising up against the church all around the world. But the church does not operate or make decisions out of fear of those opposing winds or those rising waves. And in our own personal lives, we can ask ourselves, what are the one or two most common faith-diminishing fears that I have? Where in my life am I making decisions out of fear? instead of out of faith? What aspect of my life has me afraid right now or worried or anxious that I'm not taking to God and not trusting God? Not trusting God with the outcome that I want, but trusting God that no matter what the outcome, He has me. Jesus approaches in the storm of our fears, but He is reassuring, not condemning. Jesus is near at hand and he desires to rescue you from your fear. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. And rather, Jesus would fan into flame the faith that he has given you. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.6, just before telling us that we don't have that spirit of fear, he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to fan into flame the gift of God, which is faith that is in us, so that we do not fear. Then we have the invitation of Christ to come to him. After his reassurance, he invites. It says in verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to, do, come to you on the water. And he said, Come. The invitation of Jesus is simple. It's come, come out on the waves, come out into the wind, I have you. And that invitation begins a personal adventure for Peter, which we're going to explore more closely. Now it's just interesting in the translation there, here, it says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come. And that if isn't really a very charitable interpretation of that word. It's for as much, or it could be even because or since. So Lord, since it is you, command me to come out onto the water. And Jesus says, come. He offers that invitation to Peter. And he offers that invitation to all of us. And so we're going to explore that invitation through the personal adventure of Peter with Christ and then through the disciples' response to him. So John and Mark in their Gospels don't capture this part of the story. They leave it to Matthew to tell. 
John because I think he has other things in mind with his writing of his gospel, and Mark because Mark is probably writing on behalf of Peter, and Peter is not interested later on in his life in highlighting his own actions or detracting from Jesus, and so Peter leaves it out as well. But Matthew gives us the personal experience of Peter for our edification, for our learning of how to respond to the call. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So Peter literally goes overboard in his faith or trusting of Jesus. When Peter saw Jesus, it becomes apparent that he recognizes him and he trusts him. As I said, that if in his statement is really more like since or for as much. Since it is you, command me to come and I'll come. That's Peter, right? He's always there ready for action. And we can remember another time Jesus told Peter to throw a fishing net over the side of a boat. And after a night of catching nothing, he got a whole net full of fish. And so this time when Jesus says, throw yourself over the edge of the boat, Peter does it. And this is the power of the invitation. The invitation or the call becomes a command. And what God commands, he accomplishes. The invitation of Jesus is to come just as we are. It's not our power that gets us to Jesus. It's his power. Jesus doesn't tell Peter to practice his faith and get better at doing miracles before attempting what I'm doing. Jesus just says, come to me. And Peter finds that as Jesus says, come to me, he can come even over stormy water. Even though it seems impossible, he is able to go to Jesus. It would be just as impossible for us in our fallen and sinful nature to see God and recognize God and approach God as it is impossible for Peter to walk on water towards Jesus. Except that God calls us and in his calling us gives us the power to respond. God gives us the power to walk an impossible walk just as Jesus gives that power to Peter. It's miraculous and it's mysterious. But that call is not complicated. John 6:37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So if God has called you, you will go to Jesus, and Jesus will not lose you. Mark 10, 14, and 15 says, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such children belong to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's miraculous, it's mysterious, we don't understand it, but it's not complicated. God calls us to come to him and in the calling gives us the power. We can trust that Jesus will receive us and that he will not let us down. But poor Peter, just like us, he starts to overthink it. He gets distracted by the storm again. He started out in faith, but here comes fear again. And we have this contrast between faith and fear. And we see Peter sinking. It says in verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. And the application of this verse is as simple as it sounds. And it's how the church has responded to it and has been encouraged by it for centuries. If we look away from Jesus, the storm gets power over us. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, his strength preserves us. And it's easy to pick on Peter in these situations. He's always the guy that's opening his mouth to put his other foot in. But Peter, remember, is the only other person besides Jesus to actually walk on water. 
And so we must remember as followers of Jesus that it is not the strength of our faith, but it is the strength of the object of our faith. This is another difference between the kingdom of heaven and faith in Jesus against all the other religions of the world. Religions will tell you that you will be saved if your faith is strong enough. Jesus says to you, you will be saved because I am strong enough. The word of God cannot fail. When the spirit works faith in our hearts, faith unites us with Christ, faith lifts us up to Christ, faith embraces Christ. Even when the waves come, we can say that we are more than conquerors through him that has loved us. And so we understand that it is Jesus and our faith in him, the strength of him, the ability for him to command us to come and give us the power to come and then to reach out immediately to take hold of us if our little faith wavers even slightly. It's Jesus that will save us. It's one thing to begin something in faith and another thing to persevere in it. It was one thing for Peter to jump out of the boat. He was very excited to get out there and trust Jesus. It's another thing to persevere in the same level of trust when the winds and the wave are around us. It's one thing to begin a race and another to run the race. And we need the same faith and the same grace and the same power from Jesus to run the race as we need to begin with it. Galatians 3, 2-3 says, from the Apostle Paul asking the Galatians, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? Or Paul might have said to Peter, Did you not jump out of the boat on faith? So now why are you trying to walk on the water by your own power? Why are you looking at the wind and the waves thinking you have to figure out how to walk? You continue in the same faith that you began. And so coming back to Peter, we see that it actually is his fault so to speak, that he started sinking. If Jesus had started to sink, or if Jesus had withdrawn his invitation and pulled his hand back, then Peter would have good reason to fear. We should be afraid if Jesus begins to sink or if Jesus withdraws his hand. But Jesus was still on the water and his invitation was still offered. Peter sinks because of his own efforts will not sustain him. And if we turn away from the power and grace of Jesus, our own efforts will not sustain us. But we also learn here that all we need to do is simply cry out, Lord, save me. It's as simple as a child understands it. And immediately Jesus reached out and took his hands. The approach of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and the action of Jesus in this whole account are not to condemn, but to rescue. He's always rescuing. He's always reassuring. Even as Jesus admonishes Peter, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Nothing in this account indicates that this is a harsh rebuke, but rather a gentle encouragement. Jesus doesn't say, You have little faith, and so I'm going to let you sink. No, Jesus says, You have little faith, so I'm actually going to hold your hand and bring you to safety. Jesus doesn't condemn Peter's weak faith. Rather, he strengthens it with his own hand. One of the first things that we must preach to ourselves as Christians, and we must give thanks and honor to God for in our fear, is that God is never against us, but he is for us. Jesus is not absent, but he is approaching us. Our lack of faith or our weak faith does not disqualify us from his help, but it is the very reason that his help comes. 
We trust his strength and not our own. And thus in our weakness, we are made strong and God receives all the glory. This is how the economy of Jesus's faith works. We are weak, he is strong, he receives the glory. Peter must only recognize his need for salvation, his need to be rescued. And he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus is right there to take his hands. Jesus does not despise those of little faith. He doesn't say you have no faith. He says you have little faith, but you're mine, Peter, just the same, and you can have my hand. And that is true of any of us. If you don't have faith in Jesus right now, if you haven't come to that realization that he is right there beside the boat, he just wants you to step out and take his hand. Trust me, you don't need much faith. You need very little. You need simply to humble yourself, recognize your need of being saved, and ask him to save you. Jesus will not despise you. He will rescue you. That's Peter's personal adventure and our personal adventure with Jesus. But then we see finally the disciples' response to Christ. The whole church in the boat says in verse 32, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And so we see that then Peter and Jesus come into the ship, and everyone worships him. Jesus brings his fishermen into the boat. He brings his wheat into the barn. He brings his sheep into the fold. He brings his people into the kingdom where he will be worshipped. John 6, they recount this. They say they were glad to take him into the boat. And so we just have this picture again, as I said, the ancients depicted in a lot of different art forms of the disciples in the boat and there's Jesus at the end and they are worshiping him. The picture of the church in this age with Jesus with them, uh, worshiping him as he is meant to be worshiped. And, and the idea that Jesus is taking them safely to their destination. It's interesting in John's account at the end of verse 21, when he doesn't talk about the Peter stuff, but it says that when they were glad to take him into the boat, it says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, so they were in the boat, in the storm, the storm calmed down when Jesus got into the boat and then they were like, even though they were like four miles offshore and nowhere near where they were going, it says that the boat was immediately at the land to which they were going. Now, I think that's significant the way John recounts that because it is a picture of Jesus bringing the church safely to the end of the age and into the promise of God. 1 Peter 1, 4-5 says of disciples of Christ, of his people. He says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And I'm not trying to read too much into the words of John here, but I just think this whole account of Jesus and the boat and the disciples and the picture of Christ and his kingdom and the church age, and then John's little half a sentence there that just says immediately the boat was brought to the land to which they were going. And I just think of Jesus bringing his church safely to the land at which we are going, that we are guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Jesus is going to get us there. So in this kingdom age, while the wheat is mixed in with the tares, while the wolves creep in amongst the sheep, while the curse of sin remains in the world, this is the age that we live in now. Then we see in this account the picture 
of the idea that the church and God's people will encounter storms of life. The church will be rowing against the winds of our culture. We will face waves of opposition. In our life, we will encounter things that frighten us. And when those storms come up in our life, when the winds are against us, we must call to God and fix our eyes on Jesus. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 2 Corinthians 4.16-17 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We have to understand that every trouble in life, God is using by design to bring us to glory. He's using to strengthen our faith, not diminish it. He's using not to condemn us or to punish us, but to reach out and take our hand and cause us to lean on Him. And in these trials and tribulations and storms, we have fellowship or we have identity or we have um, recognition and resemblance with Christ in our suffering. Jesus is the head of his church. And although it may not seem that way all the time, he is in final command of every storm, every wind, every wave. He has power over it and he will bring us safely home. And so we must not be ruled by fear, but have faith. Jesus stands ready immediately to reach out and take the hand of any who call on him to be saved, even those with little faith like a mustard seed, even those filled with doubt with their eyes on the waves who are sinking and unsure. Christ is full of compassion and full of willingness to rescue. And so don't look at the waves in your life, but look at the rescuer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. This is a beloved story and it has been told and retold and re put in stained glass and carved into stone and painted in oils and watercolors and on frescoes. And it's been just at the heart of the message of your heart towards your church, of Jesus' compassion for those who doubt and those who have little faith. Father, we just thank you for it this morning. I pray that we would examine our own lives and give over to you those areas of fear in our life and replace them with faith. And for those that are unsure, that they would put their hope in the rescuer, not confident in the strength of their faith, but confident in the strength of he who saves. Father God, we give you thanks for this in Christ's name. Amen.